Hey everybody, uh, before we get to episode number 92 with Mike Schpanik, uh, I wanted to take a minute and acknowledge that this is another one of those episodes I recorded before we had our COVID-19 uh, shutdowns and we were all in a distance learning situation. So uh, they're definitely going to have some dated components to this conversation and how we're discussing about you know classroom practices and that sort of thing. With that said, I think that um, Mike's focus on using Twitter to develop community and also his discussion of going gradeless may have uh, some extra connection to many of us as we're navigating in a new sort of grading space. So uh, I've got some extra resources that I've thrown in that actually go beyond our conversation if you check out our show notes. I also want to acknowledge two separate uh, biology outreach projects that uh, former guests of Life at School have been spearheading, one of which is Project Albatross. Uh, David Kanufke has spearheaded this project, and it seeks to connect biology and life science teachers who want to make a difference during the COVID-19 epidemic with socially distanced learners who find themselves away from school and instruction for a long period of time. So if <clears throat> your students fit in that category or you know students who fit in that category, maybe you want to check out Project Albatross. Uh, another uh, one of our former guests, Lee Ferguson, uh, has organized an AP Biology live stream series, um, and uh, it's going to be hosted and moderated by AP Biology teachers. In fact, I am going to host uh, a few. I'm going to host one of those sessions and moderate a few of them as well. Uh, David Kanufke and Bob Kuhn had run a similar project a few years ago, and Lee has restarted this again, and it's particularly relevant in this period of time. So I'm going to put both of those links in my show notes, so you may want to check those out. And I hope you enjoy episode 92 with Mike Schepanik. Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 92. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life to School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Mike Schepanik. Mike is a biology teacher at Hilton High School in Hilton, New York. Mike has been teaching at Hilton High since 1996, primarily teaching the living earth and AP biology. Outside of the classroom, Mike has been a leader in a variety of teacher professional development forums. On Twitter, Mike is frequently involved in many Twitter chats, including as a moderator of the TG2 chat. Mike is also part of the New York State Master Teacher Program and the Cornell Institute of Biology Teachers. He has presented at numerous conferences and events, including NSTA, STANIS, which is the Science Teacher Association of New York State, NICECAT, which is the New York State Association for Computers and Technologies in Education, and the Master Teacher Program State Conferences. Mike was the 2019 NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher for the state of New York, and you can follow Mike on Twitter at M-I-K-E-S-Z-C-Z-E-P-A-N-I-K. Welcome, Mike. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining me here on a, on a Sunday morning in the winter. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Yeah, I was I was happy that I wasn't uh, interfering with one of your like standing Twitter chats. Um. <laughs> yeah, um, that I haven't been as big on Twitter um, in this past year um, as I have in previous years. But yeah, the the uh, every other Sunday is uh, a uh, 
one of the Twitter chats that I moderate. So. Yeah, I um, I always notice the Twitter chats because there's like a handful of teachers I follow, and I always think, oh, maybe I'll do one of these. And then I wake up and I'm flipping through Twitter on like, I don't know, Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, and was like, oh yeah, that's right, Twitter chats. That's that's this morning. That was the one I was gonna. Oh well. Um, so we'll we'll maybe get back into that a little bit later. But um, uh, yeah, uh, it's one of those things I, I seem to know you about pretty well from, and uh, we actually got to see each other face to face. You were being, I, I didn't realize it was at your first NABT. Uh, this this past year in Chicago, um, you the first time you had you were telling me you had been to NABT. Yeah, that's right. It was uh, it was a great experience. Um, the the thing I I liked about NABT, you know, it's conferences like this where you actually get to put a face with you know the digital version of the person that you're speaking with, either like uh, you know through social media or you know email or whatever. Um, to actually meet these people in person like yourself. Um, but the other thing that's really nice about NABT is just, it's a it's a manageable size. Mm. Um, I, uh, you know, when I went to NSTA in Boston in 2014, I remember walking in that uh, conference center and just looking at the floor of the, the vendor floor. Um, and I was like, oh my God, it was like, like you need to like a day just if you wanted to go through those vendors. Um, and then all the different, uh, you know, workshops there, it's like, it's, it can be overwhelming. Um, our, our Stanis conference for the state, uh, teacher association of New York, um, is about the same size as NABT, but it feels more like NSTA in that, that it's not just centralized to like, you know, biology. Um, so it, it was it was nice. So I, I I understood the size, but I really appreciated the you know focus in on biology at uh, NABT. Yeah, I, I, it's funny as you say that because I are a Massachusetts like science teacher conference. Um, I feel is like is small, like really small. Um, and as a result of it being so small, but having all of the different subjects, I found I went early on in my career um, to it. And I just found it was very hard for me to find like enough good sessions that were focused in on the content that I wanted. Um, yeah. So I, it was like, you know, it was a handful, a few hundred people uh, as opposed to, you know, NSTA, which is like, you know, tens of thousands of people and NABT, yeah. which is like, you know, 1500 or so, you know, in that ballpark, mm -hmm. um, 1000 to 1500. So, yeah, there is a something, some sort of magic size that you get uh, when you get just the right size of a conference for the the venue and the and the people and the topics um, that mesh Um yeah, we're, this will this episode will come out right after I have just spent a day uh, in Boston um, going to NSTA. We were we were talking a little bit about you know sort of the um, the the struggle of being a teacher who wants to go to these big conferences. I've already gone to NABT this year, um, so for me, you know, taking a handful of days off from school and then plus all the travel, um, I probably wouldn't be going to NSTA if it wasn't in Boston this year. Um, but because it is in Boston and my district will pay for the uh, the one day conference. Att attending, um, I'm going to drive in and go to a single day of it, um, but not miss any classes. So I'm just going to go in for the Saturday this year. How did you pick Saturday? Just because it was uh, not uh, a work day or? Yeah. Yeah. They, they gave me the choice. They, I mean, they didn't say you can't miss a school day, um, but personally um, I run a bunch of stuff between 
between the AP biology tests coming up, and um, I run a job shattering program for all of our AP students, some of which require chaperoning. So uh, myself and my other colleague end up taking a couple of days to do that. So um, I know like I'm taking a group to a biotech company like a week before that, and then I've got another group that's going to the Museum of Science for something. So I'm already missing a couple of days in March for other things and it just it starts to add up and you know like you miss three days here you miss two days here and then like suddenly there's a conference and it's like well i've already just missed two days in the previous month like there is a day of saturday conference so um i i wanted other members of the department to go um to nsda um personally and so i said um, I will go only if I can go on Saturday. I sort of actually put it out there and they're like, oh yeah, we'll cover you for a Saturday. So, um, and I checked the, I checked the, you know, the, the catalog first to see that there would be adequate things. And as of conference that size, there's a million things that are going on every single day. So I could, I can make any of those days work. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be an adventure, um, (laughs) to, to go in, but you're right. It is, it is massive in size and scope and, um, just getting around in that space is always a challenge. So, all right. Well, we could talk conference logistics and I have a feeling we may bring conferences back up. Um, I was actually surprised you struck me as somebody who might be one of those ISTE people uh, who goes to ISTE at the end of the year. Um, I don't know if you've ever put your toe into that. Well, I mean, I've thought about it and um, you want to talk about, uh, you know, expenses and stuff. Uh, ISTE is really expensive. I mean, you know, a lot of the conferences, the expenses come from like the travel and, and that kind of thing. But even the conference itself for ISTE is is uh, pretty pricey. Um, I, I, yeah, we have that New York State, um, you know, the NiceGate conference, which from what I'm told from people that have gone to both, that NiceGate is actually just as good as ISTE because, and they, they also said like the size, you know, we were talking about before, um, ISTE from what I hear is just really massive. Um, and, uh, you know, nice gates a nice little size as well, so. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, we could talk uh, conference and conference logistics, but as I said, uh, I would like to get into sort of my regular questions when my first question I like to ask everybody is, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Yeah, well, I mean, I always uh, enjoyed science when I was in school. It was definitely my favorite subject. Um, and, you know, I took AP Biology when I was a, a senior or so and kind of really fell in love with, with biology itself. Um, went to Geneseo, SUNY Geneseo, which is a state school right near um, Rochester and uh, for biology. But, you know, I wasn't one of those people that are, you know, really big on the pre-med. Um, you know, I really wasn't interested in all the schooling that was going to be involved in that. I wanted to, you know, start doing stuff uh, a little bit earlier, but I wasn't really sure what within biology. So I just kind of went in as a general biology major. Um, and, and I know the, the, the key thing for me um, was, you know, I was helping a couple of uh, other freshmen, we're all freshmen taking that, you know, first level freshman uh, biology course. Um, and since I had the background in, in AP Bio, um, you know, it was kind of like a, a do-over kind of course. Um, and uh, so I had a lot of background that some of the other students that were on my floor were also taking the class didn't. So, you know, we had like little study groups and, you know, I remember a couple of people saying, you know, gee, you really explain this really well and um, you should uh, you should be a teacher. Um, 
and my I have a background both I mean my I should say a family background um, my mom was a speech pathologist worked at elementary schools and my dad was uh, a physicist at uh, Xerox so I always like to say I'm kind of like that marriage of both of those you know the teaching background and also the science you know kind of thinking way of thinking so um, it, it just seemed like a good fit so here I am. Yeah, so that that jumps you from your freshman year, like you're you're in school and you're you're a freshman and you're like I'm going to become a teacher. And so um, we're we're of a, a similar generation. Uh, but what was it like to go from being a biology major, study studying science? Did you stay as a bio major and then get a specialization in education? Did you have to get a secondary degree in education? Uh, what was the what was the pathway um, back then yeah. to becoming a classroom teacher? Yeah, um, you know, I stayed as a biology major, um, started picking up some education classes, um, but didn't finish my um, education concentration at Geneseo. Um, but I, when I went to grad school at Brockport, which is another SUNY school near me, um, I kind of picked up where I left off. I had an advisor that I said, you know, you've already got all these courses in education, but you didn't finish it. So we're going to kind of like tailor make a program for you, um, which was kind of nice. I really appreciated that because otherwise you're going to be redoing some of those education courses again, which, you know, education courses, I guess they're <laughs> a necessary evil sometimes, but uh, I wasn't really excited about doing some of those courses all over again. Um, you know, so that got me into, um, you know, student teaching and, and on from there. Yeah. You, as you bring it up, I, I think back to, um, like how little I knew about what was going on, but I, I do think that back then, particularly in the, in the nineties, um, the, the schools of education were like well aware that the, there was a change coming, um, from, you know, like that sort of stand and deliver, uh, you know, uh, sage on the stage kind of teacher to somebody who is more of a facilitator, but I don't think they really knew what it was or how to train people to do it. Um, looking yeah. back at it. Uh, yeah. and so I feel like it was, uh, we had theory that hadn't caught up to practice. Uh, and so I, I think of my, my education classes as being very muddled messages about how to become a teacher and really were heavily disconnected between the theory and the practice, um, which I don't know is quite as true for teachers who are going through programs today. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I have a lot of student teachers. I have one right now. Um, and like, I enjoy that part because I feel like there's some things that, um, I mean, my, my student teaching experience is great as well, but, you know, like you said, it was in that different era. Um, yeah, I always think that the student teaching or, you know, just the education, education, if you will, um, should be a little bit different than the way it is, almost like an internship, it would, I think would be great, you know, like maybe just a, doing the student teaching maybe in the middle of the um, program instead of at the very end and, you know, you know, you get that basic um, coursework in in uh, the education uh, courses and do some student teaching and then go back, you know, because I feel like I, I look back on some of those courses, there was some good stuff in those courses, but, you know, I, I didn't have anything to attach it to, you know, hmm. um, some of the some of the things I, I still have, I don't know why I keep all these, but I still have all my college notebooks and, you know, I was cleaning out the basement the other day and I was like, found some of them and I was leafing through. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, we talked about cooperative learning. We talked about, um, you know, active learning, but 
you know, it was just, it was just a line in my notebook at that point. It didn't really mean anything to me like it does now. So um, I was, I felt like my education really came from PD and uh, kind of self-creating that PD program, if you will. So. Yeah. I also wonder, <clears throat> I also wonder a little bit about the, the idea of you get hired, you go as a student teacher where you're sort of taking over one, maybe two classes, you're working through things. And then your next job is you are a full teacher. You're teaching like all of the classes that, uh, you know, a full-time professional does. And I always wonder like, why isn't that in your first, you know, two or three years of teaching, you don't have the ability to t teach fewer courses with like observations or like PD as part of your, like, why is that not just baked into the job? Like what, what is the, why is it that we assume that somebody at 22 or 23, or, you know, even if they're your second career teacher, your first days in your classroom, you should be having the same teaching load, same student load as somebody who has been in the profession for a handful of years who've developed those things. And I know that it, it works enough, but I do wonder if that, a shift at the beginning of the career might help with teacher retention um, to help people like get a footing underneath themselves and not feel like, Oh, you've got to just swim now. You got to figure this out. Um, yep. uh, I, I do wonder about how we may be setting up people when the start of their career to not necessarily be as successful. Yeah. You know, I actually had a uh, start of my career like that. I, I probably should have mentioned that before, but um, I was actually hired in March mm -hmm. Um and actually, my I had applied for this job in January. A uh, they had to kind of let go of a, a teacher at, at my school at Christmas time. You know, Merry Christmas! But mm. um, they let him go. Um, I'm not exactly sure the whole background of it. I just know that there was a lot of like uh, parent. Um, you know, they they didn't really care for the teacher, but um, but I. I applied first and I didn't get it and someone else did. Um, but then he was a brand new teacher as well. And he got really overwhelmed and had a lot of anxiety issues. So his doctor suggested he go to half time. So the job at that time was kind of split half middle school, half high school. And this particular teacher wanted the middle school. So all of a sudden the high school, two classes became open and they called me up and said, asked if I was still interested. And I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> I sure was. So, you know, I did have like a nice start there. Although um, the other teachers were very nice to me. I was the youngest by about 25 years in my department. You know, I was at the tail end of the big, big turnover. Um, and they, they, I was the third person into that position. So they were a little tired of helping the new guy um, at that point. Um, I still remember a teacher I shared an office with said, um, if you need anything, there's all my notebooks. Feel free to copy whatever you need. Just make sure the original gets back. Yeah. And so, you know, um, and of course I could ask him questions so he would easily bounce those back, but it wasn't, there was no real mentor program um, at that point. So, but I did have time to kind of, to work that out. I would often like sit, near the class and just listen to what the other teacher is saying and be like a day or two behind and kind of incorporate they were using and into my stuff so it worked out very well yeah it, it, you saying that you were the youngest by a lot that's the very much my first year teaching um there was one other teacher who was 
uh, I think she was second career, so she was in her like third or fourth year teaching, but she was probably 15 years older than me, um, and she was the, the youngest teacher before I started in there, but you're right, everybody else in the department was uh, much, much older, and I felt like I was like the the... the the kid of the department like like i was the department's like yeah. child um yeah. uh, and i came on at the beginning of the year and i was teaching an 80 percent uh so not quite full-time um but i was in grad school full-time at the time so I, unfortunately for that if if i had only just worked on the teaching um you're right i could have spent more time doing observations and doing other things like that um as part of that job so I, I do wonder about uh how we set people up especially when i work with teachers in like the ap mentoring program and that sort of stuff i sometimes wonder man this is this is so this is so hard this is so much work i wonder why we're not setting people up a little bit more but yeah. uh but sort of in that vein um you know one of the things i brought up in the introduction and something i know uh quite a bit about new york is that you have this um this master teacher program, um, along with several other like state-based professional development uh, systems that you have. But um, I've read about the SUNY master teacher program. It seems like a pretty special program for teachers in the state of New York. What does it mean to be part of this program and, and what kind of PD support do you get or have you gotten throughout your career as being part of this program? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty cool in that, that we can, or I'm in with a, a lot of other passionate educators and. Uh, those uh, other educators, um, you know, the, the sharing that goes on within that program is, is just phenomenal. Um, they, they try to focus in on like three main areas, like what's your, con improving your content knowledge, um, your pedagogy, and how you, um, some of the community outreach, um, you know, just to involve that, um, you know, connection with your students, um, strengthen that uh, a little bit there locally. Um, it, and it's really like the master teachers in the program are the ones that are running really the program. And that's the thing that's really cool. Um, it, it's, it is what we make it. Um, you know, it's not like this program where you're, you're just sitting and getting the information. You are actively involved. Um, but what I, I like about it especially is we're, you know, there is some like set and get kind of uh, programs, but again, they're run by the, the other master teachers um, and you get to pick which one you want to be in. But the thing that's really cool is these PLTs, um, you know, personal learning teams that are kind of always in flux and changing. And, you know, so you get to together with these smaller group of uh, teachers, maybe like as few as like three or four um, to some larger ones, which the, but the larger ones tend to kind of lose that that um, uniqueness of the PLTs. Um, you know, for instance, we we're, I was in, really involved in, in two of them, you know, the AP Biology PLT, we were working in, like trying to incorporate some of the science practices um, and, and how to do that, just sharing ideas and sharing um, information. And then the Living Environment uh, PLT, which is like our, our grade level uh, biology mm -hmm. uh, course. So, you know, that they have like these little mini courses, you know, that are like four, three or four sessions where the, they have some, usually some sort of, a, you know, doctorate or um, at least a college professor or something like that, that is specialized in a certain area. And they present that online streaming, but it's not like you just sit in your home and, and just watch this stream. Um, you are supposed to sit with others 
um, in the program. And so while it's going on, there's uh, this chance to discuss what you're learning. Um, and then of course our larger um, cohort meetings, which are more like these workshops, kind of an approach that most of us are used to. So really kind of a cool program. Um, the only requirements are that you have to log at least 50 hours of master teacher professional development, um, reflect a little bit on that um, and do a couple of surveys uh, that are really for their the grant that they get for this. Mm -hmm. um, and of course the part of the grant too is a, you know, $15,000 a year they pay us, which was obviously very nice. And, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo deserves some credit for that. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting is I definitely would do it without the money. You yeah. know, it, it's not about the money. It's it, this unique experience that you can have. Um, the money's certainly nice, but um, it's not about that for sure. I can, I can hear teachers in New York going, shh, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So what's, uh, what's, what is the gatekeeping to the, can any teacher in New York who is, has a few years of experience um, get into this program as long as they're maintaining those, those hours? It's a, it's an application process and it's, there's like three different stages. Um, you know, it involves uh, taking a, a praxis test for to see how you are in your content knowledge. Um, uh, you know, the usual kind of application things in terms of like, you know, the resume and other things, um, some writings and, and that sort of thing. Um, at the very end, there is a, if you get to the third level, there is a, um, you have to do a teaching presentation. Um, you have to interview. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, I know some teachers in the Master Teacher Program that are in on their third try. You know, they tried a couple of the times. Um, you know, so it's it's not like it's a, oh yeah, let me just sign up for that. Um, it, it does involve some work um, just to get in and it also involves some work when you're in there, but you know, it, it's, it's really a great experience. I mean, the thing about that teaching, um, teaching a lesson, you're doing it in a small group of other master teachers that are also applying or hopefully soon to be master teachers, I should say. Um, so we're getting to see other people's lessons and the lessons are not supposed to be about anything you would teach about. Um, they're supposed to be beyond your course or something outside of, you know, what your content is. Um, so it's kind of interesting with that, um, how that all works. Yeah. And I, I think I've met a few, um, a few of the master teachers at various, uh, at various conferences and, uh, back before, mm -hmm. uh, David Kanefke fled the country, uh, he invited yeah. me down to, uh, a thing where uh, Paul Anderson was presenting. Um, he presented three places, uh, in New York, started on Long Island and then went to two other places to sort of talk about the NGSS science practices. Um, and I know there were several master teachers, there, I don't know if that was exclusively a master teacher thing. Um, no, actually, and I I went to several of those too. Um, they had some up in our area, mm -hmm. um, and it was first offered to the master teachers, and then then offered to Stanny's members. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it was you know pretty dominated by the master teacher program. Mm -hmm. I would say at least half. So, and I actually got to to know Paul Anderson pretty well um, through those. Uh, I think I've been to about three or yeah, three of those now, you know, different levels, each one kind of adding to what we did before. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and I had talked to Paul a few times before, and then they were like, yeah, you should just come down. And I, like, I had no idea what I was going down. Unfortunately, uh, the two people working the desk uh, are chemistry teachers from New York, um, and they actually had run the Pogel workshop I had done in uh, Baltimore like a month before. <laughs> so yeah. so I had like, I'd met them down there, and they were facilitators of this Pogel workshop, and then I walked in, and they're like, hey, what are you doing here? And I was like, <laughs> Kanufki told me. He's like, oh, okay. And so fortunately, I, it was like, one of those things it's a it's a it's a small world once you get into the like the nerdy science teachers who go around the country to go and do workshops um <laughs> but yeah. yeah it was uh it was very cool to to see the the and in new york such a big state but it the i feel like the professional culture of pd in new york is so strong um that's one of those things that I, it always impresses me and also makes me pause a little bit um i feel like Massachusetts has is very parochial the way we do so many things, um, you know, being old school Northeast um, people. But I, I just feel like the the professional teaching culture of New York seems so much better developed than what we have in our state, which is right next door. Um, even though I feel like we have sort of equal caliber education. I think both New York and Massachusetts are viewed as very excellent states for public education. Um, I'm very jealous, I think, of the uh, the networks and structures that you guys have built in to help teachers grow professionally. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's also one of those things that sometimes you just don't even know it's there. Like for a long time, you know, I didn't know what was really out there. Um, so, to just kind of start to get into that little loop and all of a sudden it's like, holy cow, there's, there's this, there's this over here, there's this kind of program. Um, you know, so being in the state doesn't necessarily mean you know about it. Um, you know, I, I would have thought that most science teachers at least know about the master teacher program, but you know, um, at some of these like state level conferences, when someone mentioned that, someone goes, what's the master teacher program? You know, oh, okay. You know, it's, it hasn't been around for that long. I mean, it's, I think they're in their seventh year or something along, maybe sixth year. So it's not really old, but um, it's been so like infused in the state now um, that I'm surprised that, you know, other science teachers haven't heard about it yet. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, we had I mentioned in the intro that you have the Cornell Institute of Biology teachers, um, and when I was an early career teacher, I used to drive out to New York, uh, drive down to New York City. Uh, my in-laws live just outside of New York City, and I would go to the Cornell Institute of Biology teacher workshops down there when I was, you know, back in 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, to get PD from from Cornell Institute of Biology teachers. Um, I went to probably half a dozen workshops um, in my first, you know, three years of being like a full-time bio teacher. Um, even though I taught for a few years before that, uh, I got my first like full-time just teaching biology job, which is the one I currently have, and realized that, oh, I needed really good PD specifically for biology teaching. And I would drive down there to get, to go to those workshops and they were, they were great. Yeah. Yeah. And that program has kind of faded a little bit. Maybe it's a result of the um, master teacher program. I don't know, but um, it was uh, initially, it was like just a hugely, it was a great program. Um, the, the thing that made that one different was they have these uh, a lending library. So like some of the more expensive equipment, you want to do a specific lab, um, you know, you could uh, you could get that those that equipment um, shipped to you. 
Um, they even had people that would be more of like this uh, um, kind of an outreach person and they would come in and lead some PD at your school, not really PD, but lead some of the lessons that involve some of the equipment. Um, I remember for a couple of years, I wanna say early 2000s um, that I would have a, a, a genetics day um, it was almost like this um, in-school field trip where um, someone from uh, CIBT would come in and we would do every possible um, kind of like a technique, you know, biotechnology technique that we could do with the equipment that we had. Um, so it was, that also was a great program. Um, spent two weeks down in Cornell um, learning about all the, taking a course in molecular genetics um, and also this uh, so the course is more about uh, teaching in general. So it, it was a fantastic program. It's, it's, um, it's too bad it's kind of like slowly faded um, as it is. So yeah, I could see them. I, I felt I felt that they were really positioned to help like early career teachers like first yeah. few years. Um, so I could see a place where both the Cornell Institute of Biology teacher and the master teacher programs work together. You know, Cornell is your sort of first stop in your early career, those first mm -hmm. few years getting those those early lessons. And then as you transition and become, you know, an experienced teacher and you develop that portfolio, you could see that that master teacher program being the the second tier of PD that you would transition to um, later on in your career. Yeah, that's kind of how it happened to me. It just wasn't, you know, it was about 10 years separating the two. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, I still I still actually go to the Cornell Institute of Biology teacher websites every once in a while, look up old labs and and take a look at sort of lessons and activities. And and while some of them definitely feel, you know, a little dated um, because yeah. you know, obviously, yeah. we've, you know, we've aged quite a bit and the curriculum has, has moved on. Um, there's still some gems in there of, of some things yeah. for for very uh, well designed, well tested lessons that got a lot of feedback from a lot of different classrooms um, that you can pick and and drop in. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. All right. Well, the other thing that I had mentioned in, in our intro was that, uh, you know, you're, you're one of those people who I think of as active on Twitter. You know, you're, you know, leading Twitter chats and, you know, I see you as one of the more active biology teachers there, even if you think you've been a little bit more um, laid back this year. Um, as someone who is moderately active on Twitter, that's how I describe myself, but I don't engage in Twitter chats. I, I want to know what am I missing by not joining in on those Twitter chats? What am I missing by like just seeing them after the fact and going, Oh, Oh, that's right. There was that Twitter chat on, you know, such and such a topic later on. What, what am I missing? Why should I engage in, in, in the Twitter community a little bit more actively than I currently am? Yeah. It's, I think the Twitter chats are really kind of like where the power of Twitter comes in. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of great sharing just straight up on Twitter, but, you know, you go into those Twitter chats where it's focused in on something specific. Um, and a lot of my first few ones were kind of geared around, um, like, uh, Google, which, um, for education, which we're, we're mostly a Google school. Um, so learning some of the, the, the technology there, but you start by going into those Twitter chats, you start creating some other connections with other one, other people that are specialized in those areas, or at least their interests are specialized in those areas. So you start to get that connection there. Um, the Twitter chats, depending on which one you're into, especially if it's a lot more highly populated, um, 
it's very fast moving and sometimes that's a little overwhelming. Um, I use uh, what's called TweetDeck. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but mm -hmm. it, you know, where I can kind of curate just what's in that chat. But even that is like, it's flying. It's really, really flying. Um, and so a lot of times I find myself going back to, because I know I missed some things. Um, but those are really powerful because I, I think of them as, for me, there were areas that I was interested in, but I didn't really know a lot about. And it kind of like piqued my interest in that even more. Or there might have been things that I thought I was interested in, but it kind of took me in a different avenue, in a different direction um, in terms of my thinking. Like I, I, I never expected to get into, um, you know, kind of the standards-based grading, but at some point along the line, I was heard a lot about this and got pulled into that, um, started going to some, some standard-based grading uh, Twitter chats and, you know, really kind of reframed how I think. Um, not, in a, not like I was like brainwashed or anything like this, but it was very much like this. You know, I never thought of that in that such a way. Um, and so I could start to reflect on my own teaching. I think that's another powerful thing by attending these things. You're listening to most Twitter chats have this like, you know, standard like uh, either three or to six questions that they answer or they ask and everyone chimes in with their response. And just listening to, I shouldn't say listening to, reading the responses of others makes you go, huh, I never thought of that. And then you have to kind of create your own responses and you're like, well, what do I do that's, uh, that fits into this question? Um, and I think, you know, that reflection part is just so, so powerful with our career, with our profession, because it's... Huh, it allows you, we're such a fast paced career, you know, it's always like there's always fires we're putting out left and right and we're doing it alone, you know, to get that connection and then be able to sit back and go, okay, what just happened here? What, how can I improve this for next time? Other than the, I did it in period one and now we've got to do it in period two. So I'm just going to kind of change a couple of things like that, but um, it's, it's powerful um, to have that reflection, to have that, uh, um, you know, kind of feedback from others as well. And, and people share so much on, on Twitter. Like, I'm, I was just amazed at how many just like lessons here. I've done this before. Here's here's a, a Google Doc link, you know, check it out. Feel free to take whatever you want. You know, um, we we also have this other side of the coin there that's like that teacher pay teacher world, which, you know, that serves its purpose too. But there's a lot of like, um, because of the, the, the money that's involved with that, it's so much more like hoarding or, you know, mm. you know, and you have to, to pay to get in kind of thing. Um, and it's not like that at all with, with Twitter and some other uh, social media that's, that's there. Um, so you have definitely been, I mean, cause we have similar careers and, and I know that for me, um, I, started to engage in Twitter. I, it's fun. I, I, I heard about it and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try this thing. And I went in and I set up the accounts and then I went in and I couldn't like wrap my head around what it was that teachers were doing on it. And then I went away from it. And like a mm -hmm. year later, I was like, well, maybe try again. And I went in and I, I, I played around with it and I looked at some things and I was like, no, I just can't see how this works. And then 
it was like my third attempt to engage in social media. I figured out how to curate who I follow and like how to curate my account in such a way that it became a professional learning community. Um, was it a similar process for you or did you get somebody who like showed you the ropes of, oh, this is how you use social media and these are some ways that it can change your career? Like how, how did you become a, a sort of this sort of power Twitter user who went involved <laughs> into it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I was introduced to it, but really was not like, you know, here's a how-to to do Twitter. Um, yeah, I actually avoided social media altogether for a long, long time. Um, I don't know why, <laughs> but I just thought it was like, oh, I don't want to get involved in that. Um, but I, I wasn't even on Facebook, as a matter of fact, um, until about 15 years ago, somewhere in that was 10, 15 years ago. Um, but I was introduced to, to Twitter and I think the first time that I um, really found out the power of it when I saw a hashtag, and I didn't even know what, what these, why are these, you know, number sign, you know, with sometimes a word, sometimes a bunch of like just letters that look like to me, um, what is this saying? And I could see it was, you know, clickable. Um, and so then it's like, wow, look at all these other people. like. You know, when you first get on Twitter, there's nothing really there because you're only looking at what you, the people you follow. And, you know, when you're not following anything, there's nothing going on. <laughs> so you know, part of it is to find those, um, those people and then you start to make those connections. But I, I would agree, you know, at first I, it was a slow go. Um, it's funny because I was, when you had that, this question in our pre, um, when you send this document out, I started going, you know, how did I get in started with all this? So. Um, I was trying to scroll down to my first few tweets and boy, I, I guess, I guess I almost have 13,000 tweets now, which I guess, I guess I would classify me as a power uh, Twitter user. Um, it, it was taking me forever to get to the bottom of my feed. And um, there were a couple of times, like I either got interrupted by my kids or, or my wife and I accidentally hit something else and I had to go back to the beginning. And I was like, oh, I never made it to the bottom. I never made it to my, my first initial tweet and, 2012 which is it's kind of funny in that way um so but i, I just the, the power of the hashtags there you know that's where you find other people and then once you find those other people just starting to follow those people um that it's 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 pretty cool uh, i enjoy it so yeah, I, it's funny you're saying how many because I'm less than a thousand tweets at this point um, okay. <laughs> in that same time. So, uh, yeah, I, I would call you a power user. And I think that I I wouldn't say I'm not a Twitter user because I, I certainly am read. I'm a reader, but I definitely am much more of a reader than a poster um, mm -hmm. in terms of those type of things. But, um, yeah, I, I get a lot of ideas from Twitter, but it's I am the same way about like both the Facebook community and the, the Twitter community um, like what'll happen is I will see somebody post something on and then I almost immediately take the conversation off of the platform. Like I will text somebody or I'll message somebody or I'll, like, I don't yeah. like publicly engage in the larger conversation always because I, I feel like I want to have just like a more, like a, a smaller conversation about it. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that a lot of what you said about the learning piece, I have, I've been able to do that, but then I, was able to like sometimes marinate on the ideas a little bit. 
you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I wonder what that means. I wonder how that works. So let me go read some and then I'll come back and I wonder how that's similar to what I do. And then and then maybe like two days later, you know, the moment of that tweet is over. Um, and, and now I will then send a, a message or, a, you know, an email or a text or something to the creator of that content. Yeah. And I think um, that's sort of the pace of it, that I work. Um, and I think that may be one of the reasons why the Twitter chats to me, I feel like I would just sit there and I, I'd, I would just read the Twitter chat. Um, and I don't yeah. know that I would feel I would have to I have to, probably should get out of my comfort zone and try a couple um, because that's not my comfort zone. And I also know that I learn a lot more getting out of my comfort zone, trying to do something at a pace that maybe I'm not as comfortable with, but that's, that's yeah. my normal working process. So, um, I've just sort of talked myself into the argument as to why I should try one or two because of what I know about the process of learning. And even if I hate it, I need to know what it's like to do that. Cause maybe I, I do get something new out of that type of activity. Well, what you're doing here is really kind of the same idea too. It's just a little bit more, you know, one-on-one <laughs> And like a lot of, I, with Twitter, I use the, the direct message, the DMs mm-hmm. um, for those. So if I find someone that, you know, I get some more clarification and I'm not sure if I want to put this out to the whole world, um, I'll try to, you know, send them a, a DM instead. And um, I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I um, was, oh, geez, it was an understanding by design Twitter chat, I believe. But um, I started DMing Grant Wiggins. And um, the ironic thing is I found out he lived on the same street I did, obviously many years apart. I didn't even know it. In fact, it was, we were, oh, I think we're just trying to figure out how many um, houses apart we were, but you know, uh, you had to figure out the whole numbering and all that, but I was, it was just interesting. The fact that he, we both were kind of like sharing about similar things in what we call the Park Ave area of Rochester. He had lived there before. So it's sometimes to be able to access some of the people that you're um, interested in, like talking to authors um, through Twitter, um, those kind of things. It's, it's cool. You know, you can read the book, but then wonder, okay, what else do I need to know about this? And just getting that quick one-on-one conversation. Um, it's, it's a lot of learning, like you said, um, so, yeah, and I, I do know that, you know, social media is, uh, you know, it's got a lot of downsides, um, but I also wonder about how we talk about them. It, it's it's not like they're going to go away. Like, I don't think social media is something that is magically going to disappear tomorrow. Yeah. So I always I do wonder a little bit about the conversations to have with our students about their use of social media. Um, I do feel like there's a, a very much a like, you know, uh, old people yelling at kids, oh, the, the evils <laughs> of social media. Um, but in reality, why don't we have a conversation about the curation of social media, uh, the the powers, the negatives, the, the, the positives, the um, how you have a persona that you pr- are projecting out into the world that is Googleable. Um, I feel like that bubbles up every once in a while, but I haven't really heard sustained conversations about about that. Um, and I wonder about whether or not that that should be something we're talking about more. Um, I know I have little conversations with students about it, but um, yeah, I, I my school I feel like has a very 
laissez-faire attitude about social media. Like we don't have yeah. firm guidelines. It's just, you know. Yeah, we're the same. We, we don't have those kind of, any kind of directed guidelines. And, um, you know, there's certainly both sides of the people that use it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely do not use social media like the way the kids do. In fact, <laughs> we're talking about student teachers. Um, I really talk to student teachers about, hey, you know, why don't you create a new, you know, uh, Twitter account? And that's like your professional account and just stick with, you know, the, the teaching profession with this. Um, mine has just gotten, I've, I've used it for, for other things too. Um, but, you know, I try to try my best to think about, okay, this is out to the world. What are people going to, to think? Um, and it's funny, I've had parents tell me, yeah, well, I, 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 I'm really interested in your style of teaching. I've, um, you know, we've never even met and, and they'll say, well, I, I, I followed your, your Twitter and, you know, it's, it's pretty cool what you're doing with this and that. So it's like, it, it, it kind of, in some ways breaks the ice a little bit, you know, I don't have to have that, you know, conversation about this is how we do things. Cause a lot of it, they can kind of at least get a sense of through, through social media. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I always have a handful of kids who follow me on Twitter um, and then I get like once or twice a year, I have a student will talk to me about my podcast and I'd be like, why are you listening to my podcast? It is so boring for you. Like <laughs> it's such inside baseball, but it is that they want to like get behind the, like they want to get behind the scenes and hear like, I don't know what they think I'm doing. Like I'm like talking about my individual students or whatever, but uh, they do want to get a little bit of insight of who you are behind, you know, behind the scenes when you're in your downtime outside. So and I must add to that whole persona that, you know, teachers, you know, like the elementary kid view that, you know, teachers sleep at the school kind of thing. So yeah. you know, you're talking about school on your, um, on that. And, you know, I'm using social media for that too. So. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the things you brought up in your Twitter chats and something that you were talking about was standards-based grade grading. And I, I know that you have been working on the, I'll put it in quotes, going gradeless over the last few years. Uh, what, does that look like in your classroom like you all these things you glean from various sources including social media but um how is it going to have a, a de-emphasis on grades in your classroom yeah, and i think that's like the big thing it's like it's it's getting away from the grades and getting more into like feedback um you know i i connected with someone on, on twitter um aaron blackwelder who's out in washington um who was you know, we, we kind of connected through, uh, I think, a standards-based grading chat. Um, and he, we were DMing each other, and he said, well, you know, I don't really give grades. I'm like, how the, how the heck do you do that? You know, and he was talking about his uh, end of, end of uh, term grading conferences that he does. In fact, he even, I still couldn't wrap my head around this. How, how is this possible that you're doing this? Um, because the paradigm in my head is like what most teachers um, have is that, you know, if you don't put a grade on it, the kids are not going to do it. You know, why would they do this? And then you're going to let them pick their grade at the end. Um, he, he showed me a, a student conference, a um, end of quarter grade conference. And I was just amazed at, you know, what I thought it was going to look like and what it actually did look like. Um, you know, my perception was that here's the kids are going to take advantage of this. They're going to say, well, 
you know, I should be at a 95. And, um, but a lot of kids are, they're really honest about where they are in their own learning. When you start taking away the judgment of a teacher or something like that, um, you know, in, in our, by the time we get them, you know, in the high school, most kids have a pretty good idea of what they believe they are as a student, you know, I'm an A student, I'm an F student, I'm whatever kind of student. And that's been kind of ingrained into their heads by, by the grades that we give. Um, Cause it's really, a lot of ways it's a judgment. Mm. Um, and you know, who, who likes to be judged on those kind of things? I mean, think about a professional development thing that you may have done. Um, you know, at the end the presenter goes, okay, well you people over here, you're, you're A participants, you over here, you didn't do anything, so you're an F. You know, it's it would totally change my outlook on on professional development. I mean, I mean, what I love about professional development is I'm choosing how much I'm taking this in, but I'm certainly involved in just about every one of them. Um, but like that's that's where we learn the most is getting this feedback. So. I, if I had to start it all over again, I would probably call it more of like a feedback centered classroom instead of a gradeless classroom, hmm. because that's really what it is. You know, it's meeting with kids one-on-one or through the, like, um, you know, through an assignment, like on Google, like a, a feedback through the, through Google that way, um, you know, telling them what I'm seeing that they're doing well and what I think they could work on. Um, and using kind of this, you know, a standard or like a, a rubric that we had set up as kind of our guide. Um, they have done a whole bunch of different studies about um, the effects of grades on students. And like, for example, there was a, I'm trying to remember who the researcher was, but they, they've looked at, they'd kind of set three groups up, um, a group of students that were receiving grades only um, a group of students are receiving like feedback, like verbal or written feedback only, and then a group that were receiving both grades and feedback, um, which is probably where most of us are, right? You know, we put a grade at the top, but we also have all these comments all over on the sides or or whatever. Um, and they found that if you take this, you know, kind of a pre and post test kind of approach, um, there is very little change in the pre and post in a graded group, um, there was a big increase in the feedback based group because it kind of gave them a direction, which you still have to do. But the ironic thing was that the grades and feedback, which I would have thought is the most powerful one, had the same impact as just grades alone. So putting any kind of grade on it, you know, we complain about it all the time, you know, like we give a, a student back their paper. And we've taken all this time to write all this stuff on and they just look at the grade and they put it away. You know, they put the assignment away either in that, you know, the trash can or in their folder, um, you know, but they don't read those comments. So, and why would they, in, in their mind, the grade is this final, you know, thing. I can't change it. So there it is. Even though we say, oh, you can redo the assignment, redo the assignment, putting a grade on it kind of puts this final stamp on it for, in their minds, um, you know, and, we always talk about growth mindset in our in today's day and age. And, you know, what are we, what kind of message are we sending by putting this grade on it? And in their minds thinking, I can't change this. It's final. 
Um, so that's really like a very philosophical um, in terms of that. But like, that's the reasons why I was getting into it. I was just seeing those. I was thinking about what's my grading practices? What are they doing for students learning? Are they helping or are they just doing nothing or even hurting um, their learning? Um, so I tried to just take the grade out of it. And, and you know, if you ever want to try something like this, this is a great thing to do. So first thing I tried, I saw a video or a YouTube video with a teacher that had done this. Um, they wrote down the grade in the grade book, but didn't put it on the paper. You know, so the students got this and then they just hand it back with all the feedback on there. And of course the students are like, they're looking, where's the grade? What did I get? Well, did you read the comments? Well, no, but what did I get? Or read the comments, you know, it's like kind of that, that thing. And you start to see them actually using and learning from that. Um, and you can start to see the power. Wow, you know, putting feedback on there alone is is pretty powerful. So. Yeah, the, the uh, saying that about the grades, that's actually how um, I learned that through sort of trial and error when I worked with my alternative program group, that I would want them to make corrections on, on tests and quizzes. And I found out very early that if I and this is not true of all students, and I think that that's a pretty important thing to say, uh, but for that particular population, um, in particular, if I put a number on top of the their, their test or quiz that was a low score, but I would let them rework it to improve their questions and improve their understanding, if I put a grade on the top for some of those students and they looked at and saw a low number, they would say, oh, it's not even worth doing the corrections. I'm so far behind. I can't do it. And these are you know kids who have labeled themselves as bad at school and, and as not smart or whatever and they were they were looking to have a real they had a very low quit point that's what i the way i usually describe them that they would quit on doing something very very easy and putting a number on top of their test gave them a really easy out to say oh i'm really bad and so just as you said i'd stopped putting any numbers on top of their tests or quizzes and i'd say all right let's work on test corrections today and let's go through and, and fix the mistakes we made and and that and then i would give them the grade when i had had them engage in their the, the feedback cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's really true. And I would say the same thing is true of those like AP level kind of kids too. Mm -hmm. um, but they're used to getting those really high marks. And if, you know, when, if, it, if an AP biology is like one of the first like upper level courses that a kid has taken and all of a sudden they're not scoring that high, um, they shut down too. Um, they don't know what to do, you know. Uh, one thing I don't get anymore in terms of like, I would call them understandable statements, but really annoying statements as a teacher is, you know, like, the, do you give bonus? <laughs> um, do you, um, what's some of the other ones? Is this going to count for a grade? Um, you know, th those like totally like points grabbing kind of uh, statements, you know, just don't have it. Um, and yeah. over the years too, what, has evolved from this is my thinking that do we need to have everything be required um i remember a year i looked at my my one quarter grade and i had like 50 different separate grades into that 10 week period you know if you look at it that's one a day you know so like am i saying that they have to do every single one of those um, you know, a kid who's absent, you know, for me, me for an extended amount of time has got to make up those plus the ones that I'm continuing to give, you know, eventually it's like, you know, 
it, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and, and so I always find that kids, they know if they don't know something. And so do I have to have them keep trying all these different things? For some kids, they need it. Um, and some kids, they may not even like um, utilize those things that they might need. But, you know, ultimately, that's our job to, to kind of encourage them to do so. But, you know, I have a lot of kids that still, even though we've been, we're now halfway through the year, will say, um, I, I didn't get this done on time. Are you going to still accept it? I'm like, yeah. Why would I, would, would I rather you do the work or, you know, rush through it to get it done at the last minute? I want you to do it well. And eventually there's going to be a, this like kind of end point, you know, the end of the quarter is going to be coming and I do still, I'm still required to give a grade. So if you want to get this and have it count toward um, your evidence towards your grade, you know, we will need to get it in at some point, but you know, um, kids are, a lot of the kids, especially at that upper level, are really overwhelmed in the amount of work that they have to do, you know, and uh, giving them that, respecting them enough to understand that they are, they, they can make the choice is, I think it's a powerful message that we can send to kids. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely on this journey um, sort of in parallel. I feel like I'm further down this journey with my AP students. Uh, than I am with my my honors level, you know, freshman, sophomore level students. Um, and I think that as a population, the conversations that I've been having with my AP students, they seem to be in a very good place to have this concept of growth and feedback and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I do feel like, and again, this is maybe a little bit cultural and also um, my own personal deficits, things that I have not figured out yet. Um, both what does this mean in, in the context of my class and, and how this works and how to communicate this out. Uh, but I do feel like my students who come into me as freshmen and sophomores, they are so much more about the points um, and the numbers than my older students. And that um, having them do authentic work, you know, as we've moved in that that way, uh, I, I still am, I'm still struggling on how to frame what a a feedback heavy system looks like for them. Um, and maybe it's also a little bit of impatience. Maybe I need to commit to it for longer and see, it may just take more months of practice with a group like that to get them into that mindset. Whereas in the APs, I, I tend to get them to move very quickly into that mindset um, because they're ready for it when they start out. Um, and I, this is an area that I'm still marinating on as I, as, as I work forward um, on, on this journey, but I definitely feel like I've de-emphasized grades pretty well and effectively in AP, but not yet, <laughs> not yet with the, those younger students. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I had to, I just decided to jump all in and probably to, uh, a bit of a mistake on my part, but you know what, in the long terms of things like now where I am, I'm glad I did. Um, and I just kind of came across with this, we're going to, I've been creating terms at the end of the quarter. Uh, I'm going to be meeting with you, trying to meet with you at least um, once a day, maybe every other day individually. Um, so that alone was like really powerful that like just a one-on-one -on -one time or in a very small group discussing um, how things are going with them, trying to fill in those little gaps. Um, instead of the whole like, I'm up here sitting in front giving you a lecture or we're doing a lab and those are the only two things that we can do. Um, which was where I was at the beginning of my career, you know, 
Um, now it's a lot of like this slowly progressing along, but um, when it came down to the grading conferences, um, I, I was, there were some kids that had, that were kind of right in line with what I thought was there going to be their grade, what they would ask for in terms of their grade. Um, and then there were others that were way off. And it's not like, at first I thought, you know, if they're gonna be way off, they're gonna be like, you know, trying to take advantage of the system. And what I found was, it was the kids that just didn't understand, you know, there's, there's some kids that they don't know what they don't know. And those kids tended to think they were doing great. Um, and when they weren't. And so it came down to me not really framing exactly what I think we need to do. Um, and I didn't want to tell them, you know, I wanted it to me, it's more powerful for, for me to reflect on how am I doing um, in my own work versus someone else telling me how I'm doing. Now I need the feedback once in a while from someone an expert, but at the same time, um, I always found it more powerful, you know, to go, you know, I'm not doing this real well. I need to work on this, um, those kind of things. So I didn't want it to come for me, but at the same time, when I was getting either really, really high or really, really low grades too, like some kids really like, like they, like you're doing great in this class. When you're, you're just, you know, being a little too tough on yourself. Um, those are easier conversations to have, but the ones that are like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but that's not really close to what I was thinking in terms of your grade. And they're like shocked. Um, so I actually, my very first year, I did it for two quarters. And then the second two quarters, I went back to grading um, just cause it was like, it wasn't working the way I was presenting it to them. And I needed that time to reflect. I couldn't just keep going on the path I was going. I didn't have enough time to really change it the way I would like to. Um, I, it's funny because I have found that with me, my grades always, or my class is always changing. And that could be with grades. It could be with um, just the, how we run things in class. Cause sometimes, you know, what you, what is working with one group of students, I, I should say almost all the time, what's working with one group of students doesn't work with the next group. Um, and so kids that have had me, like I have a bunch of kids in my AP class now that had me before like they know, they know I'm just going to change things up um, because, but it's not going to be just like a, a willy nilly, like, you know, let's, what the heck, let's try this out. It's going to be because I've learned from them and they've learned from me. Um, and, and so we're on this kind of journey together that like to go out there and say, let's try this. This is why I think it's going to work. I'm probably going to screw something up along the way. Um, but that's okay because we'll just adjust, you know, we're going to, we'll change things up, tweak things here or there. But um, I, I think that you show yourself as, as um, a real person. Um, you're showing like some growth mindset, um, you know, those kind of things. I think it's powerful for kids to see that from, um, from that, from a teacher. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. I appreciate this as I have a lot to think about and reflect as you there's every almost everything you said. I was like, yeah, I could sort of see a little bit my own classroom, how I'm on this journey and and some of the things. And also, you know, I I think one of the other things for me is that I work with colleagues. Um, and so and we work in collaborative teams. So like there are five yeah. honors bio teachers I work with um, yeah. and uh, and we try to like 
stay together and try not to make it so that like, oh, you're taking this person's honors bio class versus this person's honors bio class. You're just taking honors bio and we're a collaborative team in the building so that there's little difference or as little difference between class to class as possible. Um, and, and so this type of journey also involves sort of thinking through the empathy of, well, if I want to put something in that has elements of sort of a feedback system or standards-based system, um, how well will, will this work for others? How can I justify having other people modify their practice? And so that's definitely also a piece that's in there. But, um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad to see somebody a little bit further down the road than me, um, on this process. Cause it, it's sort of encouraging, uh, in terms of thinking about where, where I might be going over the next five years, um, which is my natural transition for you, which is to ask, what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the years to come? Well, there's, uh, I guess I'm thinking two things. And one of the, I recently um, took an in-house PD um, on assessment-capable learners. And um, the process quite really lined up with what I am doing currently um, in my class. But it's got a couple other extra steps. I mean, the idea is that, that kids can be in charge of what they need to know and how to get the information and how to demonstrate it. Um, right now, it's really still teacher-led, um, but the idea behind, I've been doing this a little bit with my AP class recently. Um, you know, we take those unit guides, and the first thing I do is I give them a unit guide and say, okay, I want you to, you know, find the vocabulary terms that are like, you know, the um, tier one, tier two kind of words, and you know, identify those, look those up. So, um, and then rewrite some of those learning objectives and um, oh, what's the term, the essential knowledge uh, statements into what makes sense to you. Like, how would you rewrite that? So I'm trying to do this so that they know what they have to know. And, you know, I can give them a list of things. Here's what you have to know. Um, but when they have to interpret this document themselves, it it, it solidifies it a little bit better. Um, and then giving like a, some sort of pre-test and using AP Classroom to create a, a, a pre-quiz that is not like, again, not for a grade, but to see, okay, here are those standards that we talked about that you rewrote. What does that look like in terms of what I'm going to have to be able to, to do like on, on a test question, an AP question, an AP class or exam, I should say. Um, and then from there, um, it's it's almost like a, I'm not sure if you're aware of like mastery-based grading, but it's a mastery-based grading. We're just like a mastery-based, I guess I would say, approach where each topic, I'm giving them a, a wide variety of resources to use. You know, some kids like text, some kids like video, some like a, a mix. Um, some, uh, we have those biozone uh, workbooks and some kids like to just use those. So they go out and collect the information and they come to me and say, okay, I'm, I think I'm ready to, to test on this, um, to be assessed on this. And so I'll give them a, a quick little quiz, both multiple choice and then uh, pre-response questions. And you know, if they were to get at least an 80% on that, they can move on to the next one. Um, if they don't, I would like them to go back and relearn some of the stuff they didn't get um, and then try again. Um, and so like, if the idea of like assessment capable learnings is like you have to know what you are supposed to know you have to know where you currently are 
in that learning process. And then you have to know where you can find uh, resources to kind of fill those gaps, um, what you would have to do. And that kind of cycle just keeps going. Um, and so like, that's where I would love to see my class get to. Um, so I heard you mention on another, um, I think it's the last podcast that you had, um, you were suggesting to a newer teacher to don't change too much. And I was, I was laughing to myself, I go, gosh, if someone could actually give me this advice sometime, because I, I tend to go into this wholesale change, um, only keeping a couple of certain elements that I like, um, it, it, it becomes a lot of work. Um, so like this year, maybe what I should have done is just focus on what's the, the new uh, AP curriculum look like, you know, and realigning everything like that. But instead, um, I'm also trying to do this assessment capable learning too at the same time. So um, I'll tell you though, it, the AP classroom, um, you know, using that for assessment purposes has been really helpful. I know there's some bugs in it, but to be able to just grab questions as easily as you can um, instead of the old, you know, I got to go to this exam, cut this out, put it on tape and into a piece of paper, the old school, I never would have been able to do it with, with that method. But, um, you know, that, that's where I'm, I'm working there too. And um, the other thing um, I, is kind of more outside of my classroom. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking like, okay, I'm 23 years into teaching now. And, um, you know, people are starting to ask me, when are you going to retire? It's like, okay. <laughs> At first, that, that's a whole like, uh, you know, shock to the system there when I hear someone say that to me is like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, I never thought I'd get to that point. But, um, you know, I trying to look at, you know, what am I going to do next? It's like, you know, when I see retirement, there's like, it's kind of a, a little bit scary in a lot of ways, because so much of what I do is involved in my profession, you know, to, you know, either good or bad or whatever it is, you know, um, so I'm starting to look into what it can do next. And, and part of that too is filling this, this void I'm feeling with um, having finished with the four years of master teacher program. Um, you know, so I'm currently like, I just in the process of applying to that HHMI ambassador program. Um, I sent in a letter of intent to become our uh, seven through 12 science program coordinator, kind of like a department chairman. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm also working with uh, um, video coaching um, and uh, to help other teachers. So it, like my audience almost is changing a little bit to more toward like adults um, and, uh, you know, to be able to not only just influence my own kids and help my own students, um, but to now help other teachers so that they can help their students, you know, kind of like magnifies that uh, like to call it my sphere of influence. Um, so uh, it, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at both of those. It's kind of like, you know, out there. <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like in that regard, but it's certainly, um, it's exciting to me. So. Yeah. And it's as being in a very similar place career-wise, it, there is a, um, there's a confidence and competence you get in the thing that you do. Like you work things mm -hmm. out and you do it, but having the like metacognitive ability to explain 
what it is that helps you be successful is sometimes really hard. <laughs> and uh, I think that for me, as I've been working with some new teachers and, and, and other things like that, I, I have a, I find myself reflecting in ways that are things that I wouldn't naturally have done um, had I not started to work you know, and extend my extend my influence out a little bit. Um, so I think you, there's a lot of growth that you'll get back into your classroom as a feedback mechanism. Um, and it sort of will feed back into that cycle of trying to improve your classroom by helping and communicating out to others. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right, so before we get to picks and questions for me, uh, what do you do when you're not teaching? I mentioned uh, I, I have... Uh... I have some kids, they're, they're twin six-year-old boys, and uh, so a lot of my outside of uh, thinking about work or be, actually being at work is kind of focused on, on them. Um, uh, they're at that age right now where they're involved in so many things or starting to get into that. Uh, you know, we do some we do karate, we do, um, they're playing in all sorts of sports, um, and also trying to get them involved in things that um, are uh, kind of learning based. It's kind of funny. Yesterday, we pulled out an old gift that um, they had gotten from a Christmas, and I think a couple of years ago, but they weren't really at that level yet. It's just like it's almost like a physics base. They try to create these um, roller coasters, um, and they have a little card, these challenge cards, which show them like, hey, there's a couple of pieces in here that you want to get, and here's some other pieces you need. Now figure out how it works. Um, and one of my sons has just dove right in. We worked on like a couple of them together and then I kind of saw he was getting it. So I stepped back and he's just like ripping through all these challenges. And um, it, it's fun to watch, you know, it's fun to just see him working on those kind of things. Um, so, and my other son is like the most social, social person that there is at that age. Um, he's just, he nonstop chatterbox and, uh, just listening to him and how his mind works just through his, the way he talks. It, it, it's awesome. It, it's, it's a fun time to watch them. So I'd like to do, you know, more things like going on vacations and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, generally we, we're kind of um, doing more of these little oh, one day kind of things. Um, in the summertime, I like to get out and exercise as well. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. But uh but yeah, I mean, a lot of it's centered around um, my my young kids right now. So I started late with kids. Um, so it's fun to have that a little bit more perspective, I think, right now and see that um, with them. So. Yeah, neat. My uh, yeah, my boys are much older, but uh, I can I can appreciate <laughs> those things and. Uh... Yeah, the, the, the talking about like the seeing the kids sort of personalities emerge, I think six years old is about the right time for that. Um, yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, before we uh, get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you, I know just listening to your podcast before, um, you're very much into, um, you know, doing the wet lab, doing the um, just rolling up your sleeves and, and involving that. Um, I don't know why. And I've <laughs> talked to a couple of people about this, but I seem to be like, that's my area of like trepidation. I'm, I, I always am worried about the, not so much the wet lab, because I could do a cookbook lab, you know, with kids, no problem. But it's the, 
like this roll up our sleeves and let's try this in the lab situation is something a little more challenging for me. So I guess my question is, how did you get passionate about that? And um, what kind of tips could you give a, you know, now 23 year veteran that does want to get into it, but hasn't quite embraced it completely? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's an interesting last question. Um, so I think that sort of where does it come from? It, it comes from like my background. Um, you know, when I was in college, um, I feel like the time I really learned what science was, uh, was when I got in a lab and was given part of a project. And they were like, "You need, we need to collect these data points. Um, it happened to be that I was working on uh, in a lab that studied daylilies and morning glories, and we're looking at programmed cell death of flowers. Um, and because uh, to like nerd out on the biology, basically, in order for a flower to open up, um, the cells on the outside of the bud have to die, which actually causes the physical change of the flower. At least that's the case with daylilies and morning glories, though I predominantly worked with daylilies. Um, and you could actually get cell, uh, you could measure the cell death um, through like a, a like a metabolite. As a result of the cells dying, they would start producing peroxides. And so I was studying the peroxide production of the cells of the petals of daylilies in a time course in there to sort of answer this question. And the hypothesis was that, you know, these cells were dying and so therefore you'd get this spike in signal and can you collect the data that shows this model and then other people working on the part of the project. So like, we had a hypothesis. We had a model system. Um, we had to then go collect the data. We had to then collect enough of that data to make it verifiable. And like nobody knew the answer to this. There was a model that we were working from. Um, and then there were also some interesting, like, huh, interesting moments of other data points that were collected in the time course. It, it actually turned out that the time course worked out a lot earlier than we expected. Um, like the death was much earlier. And so like that was my experience of doing science in college. And so to me, when I see my students and like we're doing a lab and the lab is literally like something that I could predict the answer to before they started and then they're collecting data and I could have told you what that data was. Like to me, that's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> and like, And for my really more curious kids, that's also kind of boring. Um, so I want my kids to do things that are like sort of interesting science and I'm not expecting them necessarily get to the point where, you know, they're, they're doing really big scale research, but I do want them to get to the experience of, well, based off of what we know, this is what I expect, but I can't find anyone having done this before. What will happen if I do this simple thing? So that's sort of where I want them to get to. Um, and I feel like they learn the most authentic science by doing that. Again, this is much more for AP students. For my honor students, obviously, I, I'm okay if they're doing something that, yeah, they probably could find this lab elsewhere in the world, but um, it'll be new to them, not necessarily new to the world. Uh, but yeah, I think AP students, particularly by the end of the year, they should be able to get out into that model system like, oh, I, ha I think this is what's going to happen. Let's see if we can validate that sort of thing. Um, in terms of how to do it, um, I think what rekindled my interest in doing that um, and really sort of pushed me forward is I, I did a summer um, where I worked in a lab. Um, and so I think that like, you know, those, those research experiences for teachers, those RETs that are out there that are so rare now, um, they're so important. But there are other ways to get 
PD, I think anytime you can get a PD where you are in a type of setting, and it may not even be a lab. So for me, it's a lab, but for other teachers, it's doing field studies, like going out and doing field biology, which personally I have no interest in doing. Like <laughs> it's a it's a blind spot for me. I talk to other teachers, they're like, oh yeah, we were out and we were collecting specimens or we were taking pictures or we we're collecting this field data. And I was like, yeah, when you're done with your field data and samples, bring it back to the lab and give me a pipette and I'll be happy to run any labs you want. But that's, that's who I am. And so that's sort of, I think what my curriculum reflects. Um, but I think that anytime you can work in a setting where over the summer, um, in some downtime, you get a week where you can either get into a field setting with some research scientists or you can get into uh, a bio lab with a, a researcher and you can actually sort of engage in the authentic process of science. Um, it will really develop, you know, it'll help you develop those things. And um, the other piece that I have found that I've been working with is um, I've been taking my kids on sort of job shadowing type projects. Um, and I've developed some relationships with university labs and that sort of thing. And then when they have like NSF grants or other things, they look to like they look for partnerships with classrooms. And so you can maybe get a graduate student or um, a PI in a lab who's interested in outreach and they will maybe be able to be, bring things in and open those opportunities up for you. Similar to what you were saying about the Cornell Institute for Biology teachers, you could do that. Um, but an even simpler way you might want to try that, um, and because you have, you're in New York, um, and sort of going back to Cornell, uh, you may want to check out the asset program. I don't know if you've ever worked with them. No, I haven't. Yeah. Okay. So asset is, um, they use tetrahymena as a model organism. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, I've heard of this. Yeah. 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 And they actually, I think, have a lot of really nice examples of sort of simple labs and similar to Cornell Institute of Biology teachers. They will send you a whole bunch of resources. You can start with them and then like create a system where the kids will start with, you know, start with the lab there and then maybe they try some things. Um, and then, and you know, that's simple. That's, they're going to provide you a lot of the background and there's, you're going to have to research some stuff and you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone, I think, in terms of helping your students on, on that level. Uh, but they do have a lending library and they will send you some, um, solutions and that sort of stuff. And, um, and they will send you the samples and they send them in a big box. And, um, if you can find something that you feel like ties into your curriculum, um, that might be a nice place where you then have a model organism to play with sort of a, I think it's sort of a training wheels st starting to that idea, but, yeah. um, yeah. So, you know, I've always, um, um, I've liked using simulations and, uh, you know, other, other things like that to like investigate the scientific process. And I mean, we both know John Darko mm -hmm. uh, and he, like what he has there, it is just like, wow, this is like right in line with the things that I've done, but getting down to, I don't know what it is, getting down into the wet lab is just like, okay, I'm a little bit nervous about this. Um, so it, it's interesting that, that I would have that kind of, I don't know, I even talked to my wife about it last night and she's like, well, what are you afraid of? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I get nervous with that. It's like the one thing in, in class that I get nervous about is, is, you know, turning them loose and using whatever equipment and you know, sometimes it, maybe it's price. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's it yeah. just, I'm a little bit fearful of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's a lot of reasons to be like leery. Uh, I mean, there are lab safety concerns 
Um, there mm-hmm. are so like you know some of the stuff I do I don't know that like the the tiny earth stuff that I'm working on right now. Um, you know basically I turn my classroom into a borderline BSL two lab. Like it's not it's a BSL one, but I turn it into BSL one. Like it's we we operate on a level and I and I have to preload a lot of stuff and the kids are wearing lab coats and the kids are wearing glasses and their gloves and and we have a conversations about the concept of lab safety and like it's really deep but at the same time that's that is a comfort zone place for me um that's not a place that I think you would feel comfortable and I will say my colleagues who I work with um there's a lot of peer-to-peer teaching that goes on between myself and and others um just like there is for other things that I don't necessarily know as well. Like, as I said, if I embark in something that involves sort of field work, um, I, I don't necessarily, I don't have the same toolbox when it comes to field work as I do doing bench work. Uh, for me, microbiology and molecular biology are areas where I am very comfortable. Um, and it's a space where I am, I'm comfortable getting uncomfortable, I guess, if that makes sense. Like, I have a wealth of background and I have a toolbox to draw from. Um, I will also say that uh, there are a lot of resources out there that allow you to dive deep. And I spend a lot of my like downtime reading going deeper into those areas to help me solve problems because that's an area I'm interested in. So um, I would say look at an area of your curriculum that you feel like, huh, it'd be cool if I could add in a wet lab here. This is maybe an area where I feel comfortable on content and then see if something like an asset lab or something like that would be a nice supplement to that. And then and then start geeking out in that area and and build your comfort zone from an area of strength um, to help offset that weakness. Yeah, that's cool. What resonated with me there, you talked about the toolbox you know, having that toolbox and uh, it's funny in a lot of areas, you know, I have that toolbox and so I'm, I am more willing to dive deep into other areas, but maybe it's just that I need more practice. Um, like you suggested, connecting with some sort of researcher or, or something like that. So I can start to develop my own toolbox, if you will. So, yeah, <laughs> we all have stuff to grow on. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, so we've reached picks of the episode. Mike, what is your pick? Um, even though I was on the development committee for this this resource. Um. <laughs> I didn't know that, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the lab exchange, um, the lab exchange um, yeah. that uh, I, I discovered at NABT. Um, and it's, you know, in that to-do list of things to look at that I finally got to, um, I've been, I've been pretty impressed with some of the stuff that's on there. Um, and it, actually, it, maybe this would help me with my fear of lab stuff is they have like um, just a lot of like simulation simulations that um, go through some of the lab processes, um, you know, like from micro pipetting to, you know, some more advanced things on there and just the ability to, they, they allow you to curate um, and kind of create these like learning pathways, um, which I love. I love that term, a learning pathway. To me, that's that's like that hooked me in right away. Um, here's a, a couple of different things that you can use to get to your your objectives at the end, and kind of letting the kids uh, do that kind of thing. So, but um, some of the uh, interactive assessments that they have on there too, really, it's it's a unique way of assessing. Um, versus the, the traditional paper pencil kind of test. 
So I like those things. I, I like to, to get away from that paper pencil test sometimes yeah. um, to see, because it draws in, you know, strengths that other kids have that maybe don't have with that paper pencil test. And that paper pencil test kind of brings out a lot of fear with a lot of kids too. This doesn't feel fearful. I'm moving things around, you know, how hard is that? You know, it kind of feels more like the video game kind of a, a style in a way. So yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm just really starting to get into it now. So yeah, I'm looking forward to playing with that later this spring. Um, so yeah, I mentioned I was on the sort of teacher development committee for the lab exchange. Um, it's, so it's a combination of, of Amgen um, and the Amgen Foundation, Amgen um, Biotech Experience and Harvard Life Science Outreach have worked together um, to help launch lab exchange. And there's all kinds of resources in there, um, including some like open classroom stuff and all these videos and that sort of thing. And um, I was in the, I was in the room uh, two summers ago when they were first starting to launch it. I actually, I think I first saw it, uh, it was almost three years ago. I was at a workshop when they were just getting ready to start like this concept of it. And I saw a video on it and I was like, huh, that looks like it'll be kind of cool. And then fortunately from my proximity, I was able to do a couple weeks that next summer and <laughs> you know, it's, it was definitely like, it's a cool concept, but that first summer it was, it was really buggy and we really didn't know what we were doing and trying to figure out how we were going to help out. And then last summer, it definitely felt much more like I could see, you know, as you mentioned, the pathways, the, th the idea is that as a teacher, you're going to be able to put a series of resources together that will help your students um, understand a pathway, a learning pathway uh, to discover something. So maybe you want to use it as a um, an alternative to doing a gel electrophoresis or maybe as a like a ramp up to doing gel electrophoresis or um, maybe you want to use it as an assessment of oh we just did these things in class can they all actually do this because well I only had six gel boxes so I only had so many kids pipetting it at one time do they actually all understand the concept behind this um, so it's something that you could plug and play and do that and then the other thing is is that if you're a student who is in a school that lacks these resources, um, you could actually design your own. Like you could come in and, and do this. And the idea is to actually make this um, this learning platform available to all students or all learners worldwide. So you were mentioning earlier, you know, some areas you might not feel as comfortable with. You could build your own learning pathway so that you could learn something or you could find an existing pathway about a topic like CRISPR, where you're like, oh, I keep hearing about this concept of CRISPR. Oh, there's a pathway on CRISPR that's already been collated by LabExchange. I can now go through this and learn about CRISPR. And now I have this extra piece of information that I now am armed with. So when my kids ask me that question in AP Biology, I'm not totally lost at sea. Yeah, cool. So. All right. So uh, mine uh, is uh, a resource called... Um, are changing forests um, and it's uh, from the it's our changing forest specifically the data set so uh, the Harvard Forest um, in Massachusetts has this really interesting long-term data set that they've been using and collecting um, for literally decades and decades um, and so I found it as an interesting piece that you can go and you can um, download data from the Harvard Forest and then use this in collating. So they have all kinds of different um, 
projects if you click on the data and you can actually get things about uh, phonology like when did things start changing both in the fall and the spring you can get data about woolly adelgid um, coming onto hemlocks you can get some vernal pool data you can get some stream data again i picked um, the the changing forest data and then when you select it you actually can get a whole variety of different types of data um, from uh, places in my particular area uh, where some data has been collected over time. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that by doing this, you actually can download large data sets about certain pieces of information um, about, you know, for example, uh, if I was to pick you know, fall phonology, um, I can actually find some information about certain dates and when leaves emerged in certain locations and then start to work this out. So this is sort of a crossover between sort of field science and big data. Um, and this is a, I plan on using this data set with my students uh, to have them do some um, authentic data science research this spring um, from some existing data sets to maybe see can they ask and answer their own ecological questions based off of existing data sets that exist um, and i thought this is a pretty cool data set to use and i know i have listeners that are much smarter than me um, both on use of data science and on field studies so um, i wanted to share this out in case somebody could come up with something a little cooler than me yeah do picture it as a um because I know you're you go um, you saw school after the AP exam. Yeah. Um, kind of like we, we do, uh, an extensive amount of time. You plan on using this as something post AP exam kind of. Research? Yeah, definitely want to do that. Um, I've had thought about using it with my younger student cohort. Um, in which case, I may have to I may pre curate some of the data uh, for right. some of my honors bio students who do a um, a, a data. They do some like sort of outreach based off of some ecology topics, so I might do that. But definitely, I want my AP students after the AP uh, to start exploring the concept of of using data sets um, a little bit more robustly. And so this is one of those that I'm going to tap into. All right. Well, Mike, thank you for joining me. This has gone very long. I'm going to have to edit the hell out of this episode. Um, <laughs> but but let, let me give uh, let me give my my show credits. Uh, so please subscribe to Life of the School on any podcast player uh, that you use. Um, also, you can go to patreon.com to chip in a buck a month or two. Um, I release show notes and ep uh, audio episodes. The audio goes up early for my Patreons, but I post show notes there along with on lifeoftheschool.org. You can uh, music on this and every episode is provided by X Magenta magicians and jake jenkins uh you can follow me on twitter at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school and you can follow mike on twitter um at mike shapanik i will put it in the show notes so you don't have to try to spell it so <laughs> thanks for all joining